My name is Anil Kanda. I'm excited about being here. I was born and raised in Orange County. I'm visiting my mom right now and also have the privilege of being able to speak and share the message. The message for today is called, ready to go? The message for today is called, How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse. How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse. And uh, uh, this is a message, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think it, it, it may throw some of us off initially, but I promise hang tight and you'll be blessed, right? It's very interesting. The Bible tells us about Paul when he came to preach. He preached all night, and there was a young man by the name of Eutychus who uh, got so sleepy uh, during the, the middle part of the sermon, he fell down, right? And uh, he died. Paul went down, prayed for him. He was resurrected. And the Bible says something very interesting. And it says the church was not a little comforted. In other words, when this young adult heard the preaching of God's word, he went through death, okay? But he also had a resurrection. And the community around him was affected because of that experience. So God wants to bless us today. Amen? All right, I think we're ready to go. Excellent. Um, why don't we start with a word of prayer? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to be here, and then we'll, get, we'll jump right into this message this morning. And Father, we just thank you so much again for Sabbath. Thank you for the warmth of your presence. God, thank you. This is an opportunity for you to pour out your Holy Spirit, the latter rain upon us. But God, most of all, we would want to sense the presence of Jesus. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Very, very good. The name of the sermon again is called How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse. It's really interesting. When Luke uh, asked, uh, you know, when I was talking to Luke throughout the week, I gave him the title. And then he messages me a couple days later and he says, Hey, the special music people are having a hard time trying to figure out what songs go with the zombie sermon. <laughs> and I wrote back and I said, I will never forget this text message. Okay, very good, very good. Thank you, Arden. Appreciate that. Okay, very good. So, you know, I, I grew up down in Southern California. I grew up in a very secular area and environment. And you know, I grew up with this fascination of horror movies. And I used to watch a lot of these uh, horror movies, and I just was, I feared the dark. At the same time, I was thrilled by the darkness. And I remember I used to watch movies about these, like, killer dolls. And then attempting to go to sleep at night when there's my sister's doll in the room was something quite frightening. And I remember some nightmares. But I remember I was also attracted to this genre movie that had to do with zombies, right? This idea that somehow the undead will, will rise from the grave and uh, they'll start trying to eat the brains and bodies of all those who are alive. And in many of these movies, there's always this ragtag team of unlikely heroes who, you know, fortify themselves in a house or a warehouse and uh, they attempt to survive the night until the military shows up, or until the cure uh, begins to take place. And sometimes these movies would not end with any kind of, uh, you know, a positive conclusion, be sometimes fatalistic. It's very interesting, Hollywood has made lots and lots of money off zombie movies, right? In fact, when there was a survey that was done about 
how people thought about, in which way they thought the world would end, there was actually a small percentage of people that began to believe the world might end through some kind of zombie apocalypse. Whether or not they were, uh, you know, uh, making light of their survey or not. Nonetheless, given the trajectory of all the weird things that have happened in the last two years, you can imagine why some people might say, wait, well, that's not that actually shocking. Right? But imagine this, okay? And I want you to imagine this hypothetically, okay? Let's say, for example, the undead do rise up. And they start walking the streets and everyone's terrified. You see everyone being bit, right? There are a few things you need to know for surviving the zombie apocalypse, okay? Number one, you got to make sure you have a place to get supplies, okay? So we're going to just give you two options. I'm going to give you a Walmart or a Costco. Now, raise your hand and tell me really briefly why you think Costco or Walmart would be the best option to get your supplies. Maybe you want to make that your headquarters. Maybe you want to hole up in there. Maybe you want to just board up the windows. But why would you choose a Walmart over Costco or a Costco over Walmart? Raise your hand. There's no membership required. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you know, those zombies won't be able to get in that Costco, right? Because those, those Costco clerks, they do a good job, right? <laughs> Anybody else? Why would you choose a Costco over a Walmart or a Walmart over a Costco to get your supplies? Yes? Uh, Walmart has more variety. They do have a lot of generic, you know, brands, don't they? Okay, I can't believe we're even having this discussion Sabbath morning right now. As, as I'm telling you this, I'm like, what is going on here? Anybody else? Why would you choose a Costco maybe? Yes. They have guns? At, the, at Walmart? Yeah, they do actually. That's a good point, right? They do. <laughs> I never thought about that. Anybody else? Anybody else? Why would you choose a Costco? Mark? You can buy in bulk, right? At a Costco, right? That would be fantastic, right? Can you imagine trying to get things out on a pallet, right? Anybody else? Why would you choose a Costco or maybe a Walmart? Yes. I have never thought about that as well, right? <laughs> Walmart's there almost in every city, right? Excellent, right? Okay, say you got your location down, right? You know a place where you're going to get your supplies, okay? Now you've got to choose your team. Okay, in fact, my brother told me he recently played a game with a group of young adults, and the question was asked, if you were bit or someone in your friend group was bit, who would be the last person to tell everybody? And you know what happened, right? They'd eventually become like a Judas and then bite everybody else, Right? So you've got to make sure that the people you have on your team are going to help you survive the zombie apocalypse, right? You don't want to be that person who gets bit also and doesn't tell anybody about it and then betrays the entire group at the end, right? Here's the third thing you need to do when it comes to surviving the zombie apocalypse, and that is this. You want to make sure you have a good vehicle, now, let me ask you a question. What kind of vehicle would you need to survive the zombie apocalypse? And please don't say a Prius. <laughs> I have a Toyota Prius. It's got this weird suspension system. If I drove out, drive over a pothole, actually the suspension system disengages and the car stops, it loses power. That's not the vehicle you want in a zombie apocalypse, okay? Anybody else? Someone tell me, what kind of vehicle would you like in a zombie apocalypse? Raise your hand. What? A Hummer 2, okay. <laughs> Nothing would stand in that way, right? Anybody else? A helicopter, right? 
Yeah, that's good. I, I just never thought about that, right? I was thinking cars, but yeah, Arden. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. You guys are doing far more thinking about this than I have. So anybody else? What kind of vehicle would you be like? This is the perfect vehicle to survive a zombie apocalypse. Raise your hand. An SUV. What kind of SUV? A Subaru. <laughs> you know what? They make those vehicles to last, right? Even through zombie apocalypses. Yes? A solar-powered Subaru. A solar-powered Subaru, right? Okay. Now you guys are thinking, anybody else? What kind of vehicle would you need to survive the zombie apocalypse, right? The undead have raised from the ground, and now they're haunting the world, right? And, and here you are, you're just with your, your friends, you've got a place, you've got to look for a vehicle that you're going to need long-term to survive the zombie apocalypse. Anybody else? This is why, by the way, mostly everyone dies for this reason alone. Yes, a horse. Someone said a horse. Okay, right? Unless it gets bit by a zombie, yes? A Brinks armored vehicle. Okay, <laughs> now you guys are thinking, right? One more person. What kind of vehicle would you need to survive the zombie apocalypse? A Volkswagen bus. You know what? That's actually not surprising. Those things have lasted a very, very long time, right? That's amazing. Well, friends, now the whole idea of the undead raising, rising from the ground and uh, biting people and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, crying out brains, brains, haunting the world seems pretty fantastic, right? It's very horrific to actually think about, right? And maybe even the devil's taking a pot shot at, at uh, the resurrection, you know, that's attached to the second coming. But nonetheless, it's, 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 it's very horrific to think of this idea that millions upon millions of, of creatures would rise from the grave and the one thing on their mind is human flesh, right? You can just imagine what a scary world that would be and praise God, that is not going to happen. Can you say amen to that, right? That is something that is not biblical. It is not prophetic. It is not part of Scripture. God has shown us very clearly what end-time events will consist of. And praise God, zombies are not part of that. But what if I was to tell you that there is something worse than a zombie apocalypse that is, that's happened and is going to continue to happen. Now you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Take a good look at what Ellen White says right here. She says this, we think with horror of the cannibal. You're like, wait a minute, this is Ellen White? Yes. We think with horror of the cannibal who feasts, in such graphic language, on the still, warm, and trembling flesh of his victim. Now, I know some of you guys are checking me. The reference, by the way, is Adventist homepage 440.4. <laughs> but are the results of even this practice more terrible, notice this, than are the agony and ruin caused by misrepresenting motive, blackening reputation, dissecting character? Let the children and the youth as well learn what God says about these things, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Friends, we're dealing with something worse than a zombie apocalypse. We're dealing with a society that is cannibalizing itself and a church that is also starting to cannibalize itself. 
And God wants us to recognize something. Hey, more scarier than the headhunter who's trying to eat you or the zombie that's trying to eat you is when you are destroying other people with your words. I remember reading this and I began to think to myself, man, words have far more power than I realize. Now just think for yourself. God could have created this world without the use of words. I mean, he could have just thought it into existence, right? But the very fact that God spoke tells us something. He wanted those around him to understand very clearly what his intentions were in creating this world. He wanted those around him to understand that he was directly responsible for the life on this planet. Think about what the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 18. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about your life. Now just imagine your life. Just go back, and I want you to imagine. Think about all the positive things that people have said to you. Think about all the words of encouragement, the affirmation, the guidance. Think about the courage they spoke into your life, and think how much it's shaped your life. Think about those crucial moments when you were in transition, wondering, should I make this decision or that decision? And somebody comes to you with some counsel and guidance, and God affirms this is the right thing. Think about when you were just fainting. Maybe you were broken by sin, and somebody gives you a word of encouragement, and it makes all the difference. Perhaps you were at the moment of leaving the church, and someone gives you some words, and you decide that you're going to hold, you're going to stick this out, you're going to stick with God's people. Words affect us. Now just think about how words have destroyed. You might have been abused by somebody. You might have been hurt by somebody. Perhaps somebody said something to you still to this day. For many years, that's in your heart and mind, and when you think about it, it just, there's this emotional pain in your heart. Think about maybe words you spoke that you think later on, I wish I never said that. How many times maybe you might have spoken in anger, in frustration, in agitation. I remember telling one of my best friends, I just got so frustrated with him. We went on this long road trip for many days, and I just was so irritated by him. I actually said this, and I can't take back those words. I've apologized to a number of, number of times to him. I said, I said to him, I finally I said, you are the most annoying person I have ever met. <laughs> and you know what I said afterwards? When I realized the horror of what I said to him? I said, but I love you so much, man. <laughs> and still to this day, he'll make joke of it, and he says, remember when you called me the most annoying person you have ever met? I go, but do you remember the second part? He's like, no, I don't. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about Jesus when he spoke. The Bible tells us, he said, the words I speak to you are spirit and life. And when he would speak, even the temple guards who came to arrest him were so shocked and so blown away by the words that came from his mouth, they just stopped there and they just listened. And then they went back to their own, their supervisors and they said, no man ever spoke like this. The words that came out of his mouth 
We've never heard anything like this. Friends, today we're going to be talking about one individual who used his words to build life, to create life, to give life to others. Now you may think, what is the purpose of this message? God calls us to be fishers of men. Can you say amen to that? And you know the difference between a fisherman and a fisher of men? A fisherman takes living things and he makes them dead. A fisher of men takes dead things and he makes them alive. And it's through the power of the words that God gives to him that he's able to speak life and courage into somebody else's life. Today we're going to be taking a good look at the book of Acts. And one man who was so instrumental in changing the church, the scriptures talk about him. Take your Bible, let's go to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Notice what the Bible says right here in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. And they had all things in common. The Bible here is describing the, the growth of the early church. Two chapters prior to that, the, latter, the early rain came upon uh, the praying disciples. And now the church was beginning to grow and expand. And the Bible also teaches they were not just growing in numbers, they were growing in character. They were starting to share. They were starting to, 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 to grow in, in reflecting the character of Christ. But notice what the Bible says right here, and I think this is very interesting. Notice what it says in verse 36. And Yosis, another word it may say in your translations, Joseph, right? When I first read that, I remember reading it out loud, and I said, and Jose's, <laughs> who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Don't ever forget that, where he's from. From Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought, it the, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the Bible introduces us to a very interesting individual. The scripture says his name is Joseph, or Yosis, right? But eventually, this man was given a brand new name. It was called, or his name was called Barnabas, which means son of consolation, son of comfort. And this man was called this because apparently he was a very encouraging individual. He was using his words to build people up, not break them down. And it's interesting because we don't know anything about this guy's background. We just know essentially where he's from. And apparently, one day he has this conviction that he has some land. He's going to sell that land, and he is going to lay it at the leadership of the church. Now, that's really incredible because land back then represented something. It represented your family's inheritance. And for him to sell that tells us something about this individual. In fact, what's really interesting, in the very next chapter, right next to this very story, is the story of a person or a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who also sell the land. And the Holy Spirit actually put these two stories together because God wants us to see a contrast. You see, one man who sells his land gives the entire money to the leadership and he says, use it for what you think is best in the work of the Lord. Then the second group of people, they sell the land, they tell everyone else, yeah, we sold our entire land, here's the profits. And they were holding back, they were lying about what they were doing. And the scripture tells us one had God's approval and one had God's disapproval. Look, friends, I remember listening to this old preacher one time and he says, you want to know something? He said this, 
the last thing to be converted in a man oftentimes is his wallet. He says the last thing to be saved in a man is his wallet. It's his bank account. But we learn something about Barnabas. He has a very generous spirit. And he begins to give because he wants the money that he has to be used of highest value and that was for the work of the Lord. And so the first thing we're introduced about this guy named Barnabas is he's encouraging others with his wallet. He's actually blessing people. I heard the story, actually one of my good friends told me not too long ago. He said that he was at a decision where one of his nephews needed a car that he had. And my friend said he had a few cars and uh, you know, he's not very wealthy, but he realized his cousin just got married, had a kid and he was like, man, I've gotta, I've gotta do something here. I'm gonna give him one of these vehicles. And what was really extraordinary is he just thought, man, I don't know if I made the right decision or not. Very next day, somebody comes up to him and says, look, we have something for you. It's like, okay. So he takes his wife, takes his five kids, they go there. He's like, what? I have a check for $30,000 for you. Puts it in his hand. And he realized, I can't outgive God here. I can't outgive God. And when you're generous like Barnabas, you will see more blessings come towards you than you will see giving them away. Amen? Amen? Blessings are meant to be given. Blessings are meant to be shared. Right? But here's, I want you to see something interesting about Barnabas. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. We're going to start digging deep in the life of this man who used not only his wallet, but his words to strengthen the church. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Notice what it says right here. This is really remarkable. It says this, starting with verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, verse 19, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of the men were from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, which were Greek Jews. In some cases, they were also Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now when news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Notice what happens here. The church in Jerusalem operates like a, like a headquarters of the growing church. They start noticing something. They notice that non-Jewish people are starting to accept the gospel, and it's just exploding. So what they decide to do is, hearing the news, they decide they're not going to neglect the work. They're going to be faithful to the work. They said, who can we send to this area? Who do we know that will be able to be an encouragement and a blessing to the church? By the way, one thing I've become more and more convinced about and convicted about is when you study out the early church, the early Adventist church, when young adults moved to a location, it wasn't because they were, you know, that they decided many times this was the best place to be socially, this was the best place to be uh, monetarily, it was lucrative. They decided there was a mission and they said, Lord, send us where we can be most useful. Not, as well, not so much what can we can be so, uh, what can be most convenient. Send us where we can be most useful for the cause that you have for us. So Barnabas is sent. And he goes there. And notice what the Bible says next. This is really remarkable. Verse uh, 23. 
And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now notice the result. And a great many people were added to the church. When you study out the early church, it's like a delicious recipe, right? When God wants to do something, he adds an ingredient, right? The first ingredient, obviously, is the Holy Spirit. But the next ingredient he adds is the preaching of God's word. But as the church continues to grow, he adds another ingredient, which is the organization of the church via the deacons. And the church grows. And the Bible even says a great number of the priests were also converted after that experience. But God also adds another ingredient. He adds the ingredient of a single individual by the name of Barnabas. He doesn't add a method. He doesn't add a strategy. He adds a man. And the Bible tells us this individual's name, Barnabas. Barnabas was not a Paul. Barnabas didn't have ministerial training. In fact, I think it's a disservice to the church so many times when we begin to exalt preachers and teachers because later on we will find out how human they really are. Don't build your faith around a teacher or a preacher. Build it upon the word of God. Amen? Because sooner or later you're going to be disappointed by leadership. God wants us to see something about this man named Barnabas. This was an individual. He was a lay lay member. He sold some land, and now God began to use him. And he was sent to a church that was starting to grow, and he encouraged them. The result is, it exploded. You know why I think this is so important? The idea of encouragement? is because, take a good look at this quote right here. This is by uh, Millard J. Erickson. He's a theologian who wrote, wrote about the Holy Spirit. And he says this, If reality is fundamentally physical, then the primary force binding it together is electromagnetic. If, however, reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituting force is that which binds persons together, namely love. Well, you can say, wait a minute, how do you know that to be true? Now just think about the pandemic that we are in. If you were just to utilize completely just quarantine as a measure of saving people's life, it would work. Why? Because when a person is quarantined, obviously the disease can't get to them and they can't get to the disease. But the fact that mental health issues have just skyrocketed, suicide rates have skyrocketed, where you have young adults that are struggling with so many kinds of just the gamut of issues that exist, tells us something. We are not primarily physical beings. We are also social beings, and when this uh, social component of our life is affected, there is disastrous results. In fact, I was listening to some uh, interesting testimonies of people who were in solitary confinement for over five years, and they described how angry they began to become. And how critical they began to come, become. And they would stare at the wall, staring at the plaster. They said they would take the soap and they would try to make figurines out of it. Day after day. And they said, we couldn't talk to anybody. Even the way they put the cells, they wouldn't put a cell directly across from us. They would put it diagonally across from us. So the only way that we could talk to them is we would have to go to the corner of the cell, yell until the other person heard us. They said it was complete torture, right? The point is this. We're living in a world today where people need encouragement. 
They need some form of connection. They need to be built up. And when words are spoken to them, it will make or break them. And it could be in a different, it could be just the difference between, between eternity of life and eternity of nothingness. Sharing words of comfort and hope is what people need like never before. There's three things to learn about Barnabas' encouragement. Number one, presence. Number two, promises. Number three, potential. Presence, promise, and potential. They didn't just send a text message to the church in Antioch. They didn't just send Barnabas to go there, drop off some flyers, and then take off. They didn't just put a Facebook ad out there. They sent Barnabas there, and they said, Barnabas, we want you to be a presence there. In fact, there was this book that's out. It's called the, I'm, I'm trying to say it right, it's called The Seven Effective Habits or Seven Principles of an Amazing Marriage. And they said, this is interesting, there was an experiment that was done with some researchers. What they did is they took several, several of these families, and they put cameras everywhere except in two places, the bedroom and the bathroom. And they said, we would observe these families over the course of several days, several weeks, sometimes months. And they said, we were actually able to identify when couples would be on the verge of divorce or would be divorced most likely. And they said, we were actually able to hone in on specific characteristics. And you know what they state as one of the characteristics? This is very interesting. They said this, we noticed this as a pattern. And we saw this. Whenever we saw this, we're like, they won't last very long. And it was true. What was that pattern? They said that when the husband and wife would talk to each other, if they would actually turn their body and face them, it was a sign that the marriage would do well. But when they would not even face each other when talking throughout the course of the day, they realized it was actually indicative of problems that the very way that, they, that they exuded presence to the other individual said something about their relationship. God sent through the church Barnabas to be a presence to the early church. And when he got there, he started encouraging them. But notice what it says next. This is very remarkable. Notice what it says in verse 23. It says this, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and notice this, he encouraged them all with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Notice what he begins to give them. He didn't just show up there. He actually begins to give them promises. In fact, what's really remarkable, the word purpose of heart actually translates in Greek. I didn't know this before. Prothesis, which means purpose, but get this, it also means showbread. Showbread. The showbread that was used in the temple services. You can take out your uh, concordance on your phone. You can see that. Hebrews actually uses the same word, and it's describing this presentation. By the way, do you know if you study out stories of people who resorted to cannibalism, like those soccer players that crashed in the Andes Mountains, and you know when they, when they were there and eventually they resorted to cannibalism, or you can look at the Donner Party, do you know what the primary factor is that led to cannibalism? They ran out of adequate food. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's not that impressive. <laughs> Do you know what happens when churches are not fed properly the word of God? 
they start cannibalizing. What do you think's happened to society? There's a famine for the word of God, right? In fact, let me just give you an example of this. I had somebody message me. They said, hey, can, you know, can we talk? And I said, sure, let's talk. And it was just somebody I was mentoring, and they said this. They said, uh, Pastor Nell, I just preached the worst sermon ever. I go, you preached the worst sermon ever? What happened? And they said, I, I preached for 45 minutes, and this guy in the back, one of the elders, stands up, and he goes like this. <laughs> when the elder is doing that, you know you're in trouble. And he said, so I ended the message. He's like, I've never had to end a message like that. I go, I'm so sorry to hear that, man. I go, what'd you preach about? He says, well, my sermon was about lions in the Bible. I was talking about the book of Daniel. I go, that sounds great. I go, what scripture verses you shared? He said, I never got to it. I said, I said, wait, what did you talk about for 45 minutes? And he said, the COVID conspiracy going on. And I said, brother, you've got to preach the word to people. That's what gives life to them. I was like, you've got to share the scriptures. Talk about whatever you think is best to talk about, but jump into the word. The word is the bread. The word is that which will feed people. I go, but this is really funny. I go, what'd your wife think about it? She, he's like, she didn't like it either. <laughs> and you know you're in trouble then, right? Right? It's supposed to be, the person's supposed to encourage you, right? Friends, what you see about Barnabas, it wasn't just his presence that encouraged people. It was also the promises he began to share. He began to share hope and encouragement to these people. And he reminded them that God loved them and would care for them and take care of them. By the way, you know, when I first became a Christian, it was really interesting. I remember sitting in church, probably the second or third Sabbath, I had this big old King James Bible. And I remember the pastor would say something like, hey, everybody turn to the love chapter in the Bible. And I had a King James Bible, so I went into the concordance. I'm like, I have no idea what a love chapter is. So I looked up the word love, and you know what word was in 1 Corinthians 13 instead of the word love? It's the word charity. I never thought that was the love chapter. I'm like, where does the word love appear? You know where I found the word love? I found it in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, more than any other books of Scripture. And I thought, man, John talks about love. This must be what the pastor's talking about. Obviously, it was not. But as I begin to study out 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, one thing is really remarkable, and that is this. Every time John mentions the word love, in the exact same sentence, he mentions the word God. Every time he mentions the word God, in the exact same sentence, he mentions the word love. Because to John, he could not speak about God without speaking about love, and he could not speak about love without speaking about God. And that's why he could say emphatically, God, amen. That should be music to your ears. God is love. Barnabas encouraged these people who felt alone, who didn't feel like they had a shepherd, who felt like they, they lacked leadership and experience, who felt they were in uncharted waters, and he said to them, he's like, the Lord is with you, and the Lord is going to bless you, and he is going to take care of you. And by the way, you know what's really interesting? The Bible tells us in Proverbs, this is really powerful right here, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. I want you to see a powerful verse here. This is amazing. Proverbs 25, verse 11. You're like, wait, how do I encourage people? Take a good look at this principle found in the book of Proverbs chapter 25. Notice what it says in verse 11. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Notice what it says in verse 11 right here. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in what? 
Now just think about that, apples of gold in settings of silver. In other words, by the way, what's really interesting, this is really remarkable, by the way, this idea of, of apples of gold and silver is also what Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, describing the fruit from the tree of life. That's the description. And it's really interesting because what you're seeing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that words that are spoken at the right time, at the right place, is like fruit from the tree of life. But notice the criteria for encouragement. Fitly spoken. It's the right timing for this. And I begin to realize something when I look back at all the people who encouraged me and people who blessed me and spoke life into my circumstances and experiences when I was depressed and discouraged. And I realized a few things, a few characteristics. Number one, there was observation. These people didn't just say, hey, good job, hope you do well, we'll pray for you, God bless. They paid attention to what was going on with me. And I noticed that. The second thing that also took place in good observation or biblical, or biblical encouragement was not just observation, it was intentionality. Intentionality. These people actually thought about what they were going to say to me before they said it. And when they thought about what they were going to say, when they recognized the circumstances that were in my life, those words had a deeper impact upon my life. Friends, if you just want people to be nice, go to Walmart. Actually, don't go to Walmart. Go to Costco. <laughs> the church is more than just about customer service. Can you say amen to that, right? There's a battle for souls that are taking place. And God wants us to utilize his words in a world that is cannibalizing itself to build life, to bring life, to speak life into other people. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Not just observation, not just intentionality. You ready for this last one? Super important, consistency. Consistency. When I was a pastor, I remember that when there was a funeral that took place and people were broken and going through hard times or there was some tragedy or people were dealing with depression, oftentimes people would show up and say, look, we're here to help you. And then you would never hear from them again. I have realized like never before the power of consistency. I failed so much in consistency that I began to realize I said, I've got to make a better effort, a consistent effort to reaching out to people, to speaking to people, to encouraging people. Friends, God is not so much worried about the quantity of work you do, but the quality that you put in that work. And when you're saying, look, I know about a few people that I want to reach out and I want to encourage, be consistent with them. In other words, periodically keep coming back and say, look, hey, is there anything I can do for you? You know, when you read the story, by the way, the story of the angel that ministered to Elijah, Elijah the depressed prophet, you know what's so powerful about that story? The angel doesn't talk a lot. You know what he does? He wakes Elijah up and he says, hey, there's some food here. Okay, here's some water too. Elijah goes back to sleep, doesn't even talk to the angels like, Man, by the way, if an angel shows up, <laughs> I've already got a list of questions. Who are you? What's your name? What's your position? How long have you been watching over me? What's God's big plan in the universe? When is the second coming going to happen? If, do you know that? No, you probably don't, right? Tell me about other angels. What about my friend? He got hurt. Does he have an angel? You know, like you've got a list of questions you're going to be asking angels. But when you look at Elijah, he is so discouraged and depressed in his circumstances, he's just like, okay, and he goes right back to sleep. But you know what the angel does? The angel's consistent. He wakes him back up and he says, Elijah, the journey's going to be long. Here's some more food for you. 
Here's some more food for you. He's consistent in his behavior. And it's teaching us something about the power of consistency. Don't just reach out to people when everybody else is doing the reaching out. Be there when everyone backs away. You're going to realize that the power of consistency will awaken more opportunities and more blessings for you than you even realize. Consistency with people, consistency with your habit, consistency with your work, consistency with your life, you will realize it will open up more blessings than you can realize. So challenge yourself. Not just be observational, not just be intentional about what kind of words you want to say to a person, but also be consistent. For Barnabas, it was not just presence, it was not just promises, but it was also, get ready for this, potential. How do you know that? Go to Acts chapter 11. I want you to see something remarkable here. Acts chapter 11. Notice what it says in verse 25 as he's ministering to the church. Verse 25 here, Acts chapter 11, verse 25. It says this, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now he's like, what's the big deal? You know why this is a big deal here? Because when Paul was converted in the book of Acts a few chapters before, do you know what happened? He immediately went into the synagogue. He confounded the Jews. He caused an uproar. And you know what the brethren did? They sent him to Tarsus. Do you know why that's so important? They didn't know how to deal with Paul, this man who was zealously converted. And you know what they did? They said, go back home to where you're from. And you have, this, uh, you have a few chapters and when it seems that the story of Paul is forgotten about. When this whole episode of this, this, this Pharisee who, be, who was a persecutor who eventually became a convert through this powerful providence, the whole story seemed to be tucked away. But you also learn in the book of Galatians that Paul was communing with God when the Spirit also visited Arabia during that time. But for many months, Paul was just forgotten about. Barnabas, what he does, he's like, look, you know what I'm going to do? I, this church is growing, but we're going to need some help. I'm going to go get Saul. And he goes to where Saul is at. And he brings him there. You know what's so powerful about Barnabas? He had an ability to look past people's past. And when you look past people's past, you start seeing their future. Do you know this man Saul became Paul and actually wrote much of the New Testament. You're like, wow, that's impressive. You want to know what else is impressive? You read the book of Acts chapter 15. There's this disciple by the name of John Mark, who Paul is like, no, nah, I want nothing with John Mark. He flaked out on us last time. Barnabas actually takes John Mark, and you know what Barnabas does? He goes back to Cyprus. Cyprus. And what he does is he ministers and disciples John Mark. Do you know who wrote the Gospel of Mark? I'll give you a guess. <laughs> We're talking about brains being eaten today. Apparently some have, right? <laughs> John Mark is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. You're like, wow, that's impressive. You know what else is also impressive? Mark's Gospel also inspired parts of Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, which is kind of considered a final edition, final draft on the Gospels. Not only... Did this, uh, this individual, this young man who failed in his past, and by the way, there's actually some scholars who speculate the man in Mark chapter, I think it's chapter 13, who fled during the time of that night, the one that only Mark's gospel describes about. Some scholars actually believe or speculate that this was Mark because apparently there's knowledge there that's not present in the other gospels. Mark is a person who seems to be running away when he's needed the most. 
He's the kind of person that it's like a hike, when you're hiking with a wooden stick and that stick breaks and you, it goes right through your hand. I mean, that's never happened to me, but you just imagine what that would be like, right? The Bible says an unfaithful man in times that are needed is like a tooth out of joint. We needed this man and he wasn't there for us. That's who Mark was. But you know what Barnabas did? Barnabas says, I can see past his past, and I'm going to go minister to him. So sharp was the contention, the Bible actually says, that Paul and Barnabas departed. And you know where Barnabas goes? Barnabas actually goes back to Cyprus. And essentially, that's the last we hear about Barnabas in the book of Acts. We don't hear about him. And where his story began with Cyprus, it now ends with him disappearing in Cyprus. Barnabas is the type of guy that wasn't trying to be on the world's spotlight. You know what he was trying to do? He said, I want to be faithful wherever God would have me to be. I want to win souls wherever God would have me to be. I want to encourage and bring as many people as possible into the church with the life that God has given to me. Barnabas' name, by the way, means, it means son of encouragement. Do you know the actual Greek word is the Greek word that's connected to parakletos, which is the word for the Holy Spirit? You know what they named this guy? They essentially named this guy after the Holy Spirit. Because so powerful was this man and so connected to human beings, so loving he was to other, other individuals, that they're like, man, it's, it's like this guy, he's not just full of the Holy Spirit. We just sense the Spirit of God around him and through his words. His word, his name was Joseph. You know who Joseph was? Joseph was the guy that was promoted all the way to the top of this foreign nation, the most powerful nation at that time. What a name, what a legacy, what a future. But Barnabas, more important than trying to get to the top, was reaching out to those that were around him. I tell this a lot to a lot of young adults who are discouraged and depressed, and that is this, if you live so much in the future, you're going to be depressed in the present. You know, I wrote a book not too long ago. It's not cheesy advertising for that book called Rethinking God Apologetics on Amazon. But anyways, <laughs> right after Sabbath. <laughs> just anyways. But anyways, I've learned so much about life in writing this book. So many times when I was writing this chapter, I was writing one chapter after another chapter, I realized I would think about the other chapter. I'm like, man, I'm thinking about the other chapter. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about what's next. But what happened is I began to be so interested in what was happening in the future, in the next few chapters of my life, that I began to become useless in the present. I began to become useless in the present. And it wasn't until I wake into this idea, wait a minute, I need to be faithful in the present. And I began to realize, and I was telling this to many young adults, it was like the discouragement dissipated. So much had they been trying to live in another world that they were neglecting the blessings that were around them. Friends, Barnabas wasn't always looking to the future. He's like, I want to be present. I want to I share the promises of God. I want to feed people. And then he says, I, I want to see the potential in people. And friends, as I said before, if you look past people's past, you will begin to see the future that God has for them. And I love, in closing, what Ellen White says right here. She says some powerful words right here. And words we should never forget, especially when you're broken, you feel defeated, you feel distraught, you feel you're in darkness, you just feel disconnected. She says this in the book Desire of Ages, it is Satan's work to what? Discourage the soul. It is Christ's work to inspire with faith and what? Hope. 
Christ does not want to discourage you, friends. Jesus does not want to, to crush you. The Bible teaches he wants to encourage your soul. And if you're in a place where you're really struggling and you just feel life is being crushed out of you, you can cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, I need some encouragement. And he will gladly answer that prayer. Friends, Jesus loves his people. He loves you. He didn't come for the best times of humanity. He didn't come for the successes of humanity. He didn't come for those, those great moments when we're doing well and it seems to be righteousness in our own, of our own strength. He came for our brokenness. He came for our weakness. He came for those dark moments. Why? Because it's in those moments he's able to reconnect us back to God. Jesus came to give encouragement to you and to me. And what do we see in the life of Barnabas? A man who shared the presence of Christ with others, the promises of Christ with others, and the potential that would take place in Christ with others. Is there somebody here who needs encouragement? Is there somebody here who needs just an encouraging word, words of, of faith and hope to know that the Lord is with them? Friends, God is with you. The last parting promise he gave to his people was, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And God has a hope and a future for you. And sometimes the greatest thing you can do is just to take time to stop and say, Lord, I'm just surrendering my anxieties, surrendering my ambitions, surrendering my desires, surrendering my weaknesses. And when you just take that time handing it over to God, you will find peace and rest in place of that anxiety. God knows the future and your potential, and he wants to bless you. Amen. Is there someone here who needs encouragement, or do you know someone who needs encouragement? Reach out to them. Reach out to them, and your words will be like fruit from the tree of life to them. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And Father in heaven, God, in a world that's falling apart, we just pray you would use us to speak your words, words of life to others. God, give us just uh, uh, the right motivation and encouragement just to go share with the fainting soul the hope that is for them. Lord, so many young adults are dying. Some are overdosing, committing suicide. We have no idea of the battles they're fighting, even in this group, Lord. Bless them, wrap your arms of love tightly around them. And God, speak your word and promises to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.